Hello. Hello. Welcome to Infinite Cast Part 12. Well, tw- 12. 12 parts. Uh, three months worth of Infinite Cast. Wow. Three months down. Gosh, what page are we on? Uh, 81. <laughs> 81. Three months down. Uh, almost. Uh, uh, almost. What can we say? Like, is that that 0.8% of the book? Bit, yeah, just about. Yeah. Once we get to 100 pages, we'll have a little celebration. Well, 100 pages, it would be 10% of the book. Yeah. Okay, great. So, 8% of the book. Yeah. Great. Maybe we'll stream our, our once we hit 100. Ooh, that's something we could do on Twitch now that uh we can't play music on Twitch anymore. Yeah, we could do uh, ruined our... We could do cozy little night readings. Yeah. All right. Um, um, shall we? Yeah. Let's get. Let's hop in. Well, last we were ta- talking, had a little conversation between Gerhard Stitt and Mario, Mario and Cadenza. It was there. largely uh, Gerhard unspooling his theater, his his theories of of training boys and and getting between spaces. Right. Uh, not Mario, e- Euclidean, ge- non-Euclidean geometry. Yeah, and Mario nodding and saying, "We G Willikers." All right. Here we go. Mario is an enormous fan of Gerhard Stitt, whom most of the other ETA kids regard as probably bats and as without doubt mind-loosening, mind discursive <laughs> and show the old pundit even token respect, mostly because Stitt still personally oversees the daily drill assignments and can, if aggrieved, have Thode and Delint make them extremely uncomfortable, more or less at will out there in AM practice. One of the reasons the late James Incandenza had been so terribly high on bringing Stitt to ETA was that Stitt, like the founder himself, who'd come back to tennis and later film from a background in hardcore math-based optical science, was that Stitt approached competitive tennis more like a pure mathematician than a technician. Most junior tennis coaches are basically technicians, hands-on, practical, straight-ahead, problem-solving, statistical data wonks with maybe added knacks for short-haul psychology and motivational speaking. The point about not crunching serious stats is that Stitt had clued Incandenza in all the way back at a BS 1989 USTA convention on photoelectric line judging. (laughs) Uh, BS 1989 takes us back to end note 33, i.e. before subsidization or the beginning of the subsidized O-N-A-N-ite uh, Onanite lunar lunar calendar under President Gentle. See sub. Um, but I don't know <laughs> what this sub end note is. have a sub uh, a sub note. Yeah, but I don't I don't know where it is. Whatever. Is it at I'm, the end of the end notes? Uh, also interesting to note that the uh, that I guess this is where we're learning that subsidized time is on a lunar schedule. Which I guess months are te- technically on a lunar schedule, but I feel like they're, they're uh, you know, post-Gregorian kind of abandoned the moon cycle to go in a more clinically divided up schedule. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. I can't find whatever it's referring to. Hopefully it's not important. Okay. Well, maybe we'll find it later. Uh, anyway, BS 1989 USTA convention on photoelectric line judging that he, Stitt, knew real tennis was really about not the blend of statistical order and expansive potential that the game's technicians revered, but in fact the opposite, not order, limit, the places where things broke down, fragmented into beauty. That real tennis was no more reducible to delimited factors or probability curves than chess or boxing, 
the two games of which it's a hybrid. <laughs> <laughs> the sweet science. In short, Stitt and the tall AEC optics man, i.e. in Condensa, whose fierce flat serve and haul ass to the net approach to the game had carried him through MIT on a full ride with stipend, and whose consulting report on high-speed photoelectric tracking the USTA mucky mucks found dense past all comprehending, found themselves totally simpatico on Tennis's exemption from stats tracking regression. Were he now still among the living, Dr. Incondenza would now describe tennis in the paradoxical terms of what's now called extralinear dynamics. <laughs> that takes us to endnote 34, aka ELD, that still green shoot off the pure branch of math that deals with systems and phenomena whose chaos is beyond even Mandelbrotian math's strange <laughs> equations and random attractants. A delimiting reaction against the chaos theories of fractal happy meteorologists and systems and analysts, ELD, whose post-Gerdelian theorems and non-existence proofs amount to extremely lucid and elegant admissions of defeat in certain cases, hands thrown up with complete deductive justification. In Condensa, whose frustrated interest in grand-scale failure was unflagging through four different careers, would have been all over extralinear dynamics, like white on rice, had he survived. <laughs> okay, I th think I understand what that is. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, extralinear dynamics. And Stitt, whose knowledge of formal math is probably about equivalent to that of a Taiwanese kindergartner, <laughs> nevertheless seemed to know what Hotman and Vandermeer and Bolletieri seemed not to know that locating beauty and art and magic and improvement and keys to excellence and victory in the prolix flux of match play is not a fractal matter of reducing chaos to pattern, seemed intuitively to sense that it was a matter not of reduction at all, but, perversely, of expansion, the aleatory flutter of uncontrolled meta metastatic growth, each well-shot ball admitting of n possible responses, and squared possible responses to those responses, and on into what Incondensa would articulate to anyone who shared both his backgrounds as a Cantorian continuum of infinities of possible move and response. We're going to go to end note number 35 for Cantorian, i.e. presumably of Georg Cantor, Cantor being a 1900s-era set theorist, German also, and more or less founder of transfinite mathematics, the man who proved some infinities were bigger than other infinities, <laughs> and whose 1905-ish diagonal proof demonstrated that there can be an infinity of things between any two things, no matter how close together the two things are, which D-proof deeply informed Dr. J. and Condenza's sense of the trans-statistical aesthetics of serious tennis. <laughs> oh my God, there's so much math. Uh, Cantorian continuum of infinities of possible move and response. Cantorian and beautiful because infoliating contained this diagonate inf infinity of infinities of choice and execution, mathematically uncontrolled but humanly contained, bounded by the talent and imagination of self and opponent, bent in on itself, by the containing boundaries of skill and imagination that brought one player finally down, that kept both from winning, that made it finally a game, these boundaries of self. Whew. You mean like the baselines or boundaries, Mario tries to ask. <laughs> 
Lieber Gott, nein! <laughs> With a plosive, disgusted sound. Shtit likes best of all smoke shapes to try to blow rings. And is kind of lousy at it, blowing mostly wobbly lavender hot dogs, which Mario finds delightful. The thing with Shtit, like most Europeans of his generation, anchored from infancy to certain permanent values, which, yes, okay, granted, may admittedly have a whiff of proto-fascist potential about them, but which do, nevertheless, the values, anchor nicely the soul and course of a life. Old world patriarchal stuff, like honor and discipline and fidelity to some larger unit. Gerhard Stitt does not so much dislike the modern Onanite US of A as find it hilarious and frightening at the same time. Probably mostly just alien. This should not be rendered in exposition like this, but Mario Incondensa has a severely limited range of verbatim recall. Stitt was educated in pre-unification gymnasium under the rather Canto-Hegelian idea that junior athletics was basically just training for citizenship, that junior athletics was about learning to sacrifice the hot, narrow imperatives of the self, the needs, the desires, the fears, the multiform cravings of the individual appetitive will, to the larger imperatives of a team. Okay, the state. And a set of delimiting rules. Okay, the law. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds almost frighteningly simple-minded, though not to Mario, across the Redwood table listening. By learning, in palestra, the the virtues that pay off directly in competitive games, the well-disciplined boy begins assembling the more abstract, gratification-delaying skills necessary for being a team player in a larger arena the even more subtly diffracted moral chaos of full-service citizenship in a state. (laughs) Except Stitt says, Ach, but who can imagine this training serving its purpose in an experialist and waste-importing nation that's forgotten privation and hardship and the discipline which hardship teaches by requiring a U.S. of modern A where the state (laughs) is not a team or code but a sort of sloppy intersection of desires and fears where the only public consensus a boy must surrender to is the acknowledged primacy of straight line pursuing this flat and short-sighted idea of personal happiness. It's not wrong. The happy pleasure of the person alone, yes? Uh, except why do you let Delint tie Pemulus and Shaw's shoes to the lines if the <laughs> lines aren't boundaries? Without, there is something bigger. Nothing to contain and gives a meaning. Lonely. Verstiegenheit. <laughs> Verstiegenheit takes us to endnote 36. Low Bavarian for something like wandering alone in blasted, disorienting territory beyond all charted limits and orienting markers. Okay. Supposedly. <laughs> Supposedly. Uh, and after Stitt has said Verstiegenheit, Mario says, bless you. <laughs> Any something, so what? This is more important than that there is something. <laughs> Stift one time was telling Mario as they respectively walked and tottered down Com Ave eastward into Alston to see about getting a gourmet ice, pl- ice cream someplace along there that when he was Mario's age, or maybe more like Hal's age, whatever, he, Stitt, had once fallen in love with a tree. A willow that from a certain humid twilight perspective had looked like a mysterious woman, a swirl with gauze, this certain tree in the public plots of some West German town 
whose name sounded to Mario like the sound of somebody strangling. Stitt reported being seriously smitten, smitten with the tree. <laughs> I went daily to there to be with the tree. <laughs> they respectively walked and tottered, ice cream bound, Mario moving like the one of them who was truly old, mind off his stride because he was trying to think hard about what Stitt believed. Mario's thinking hard expression resembles what for another person would be the sort of comically distorted face made to amuse an infant. He was trying to think how to articulate some reasonable form of a question like, but then how does this surrender the personal individual wants to the larger state or beloved tree or something stuff working in a deliberately individual sport like competitive junior tennis where it's just you v one other guy? And then also again still, what are those boundaries if they're not baselines that contain and direct its infinite expansion inward that make tennis like chess on the run, beautiful and infinitely dense? Stitt's thrust and his one great irresistible attraction in the eyes of Mario's late father, the true opponent, the enfolding boundary, is the player himself, always and only the self out there on court to be met, fought, brought to the table to hammer out terms. The competing boy on the net's other side, he is not the foe. He is more the partner in the dance. He is the, what is the word, excuse or occasion for meeting the self, as you are his occasion. Tennis's beauty's infinite roots are self-competitive. You compete with your own limits to transcend the self in imagination and execution. Disappear inside the game, break through limits, transcend, improve win which is why tennis is an essentially tragic enterprise to improve and grow as a serious junior with ambitions you seek to vanquish and transcend the limited self whose limits make the game possible in the first place it is tragic and sad and chaotic and lovely all life is the same at a citizens of the human state the animating limits are within to be killed and mourned over and over again. Mm. Jesus. Mario thinks of a steel pole raised to double its designed height and clips his shoulder on the green steel edge of a dumpster, pirouetting halfway to the cement before Stitt darts in to catch him. And it almost looks like they're doing a dance floor dip. As Stitt says, this game, the players are all at ETA to learn. This infinite system of decisions and angles and lines Mario's brothers worked so brutishly hard to master. Junior athletics is but one facet of the real gem, life's endless war against the self you cannot live without. (laughs) (laughs) My God. Stitt then falls into the sort of silence of someone who's enjoying mentally rewinding and replaying what he just came up with. (laughs) Mario thinks hard again. We do be like that. We do. You do be one owns enemy. Uh, It has become quite clear to me. Yeah. (laughs) It's no surprise. It's no surprise to me. It's no surprise to me. Uh, he's trying to think of how to articulate something like, but then is battling and vanquishing the self the same as destroying yourself? Is that like saying life is pro-death? Three passing Alstonian street kids mock and make fun of Mario's appearance behind the pair's backs. Some of Mario's thinking faces are almost orgasmic, fluttery and slack. And then, but so what's the difference between tennis and suicide, life and death, (laughs) the game and its own end? It's always Stitt who ends up experimenting with some exotic ice cream flavor when they arrive. Mario always chickens out and opts for good old basic chocolate when the moment of decision at the counter comes. Thinking along the lines of, 
better the flavor you know for sure you already love. And so, no different, maybe, Shtick concedes, sitting up straight on a waffle-seated aluminum chair with Mario beneath an askew umbrella that makes the flimsy little table it's rooted to shake and clank in the sidewalk's breeze. Maybe no different, so, biting hard into his tricolored cone, he feels at the side of his white jaw where there's some sort of red welt, it looks like. Not different, looking out into the Av's raised median at the Green Line train rattling past downhill, except the chance to play. He brightens in preparation to laugh in his startling jar- German roar, saying, No, yes, the chance to play, yes. And Mario loses a dollop of chocolate down his chin because he has this involuntary thing where he laughs whenever anyone else does. And shit is finding what he has just said. Very amusing indeed. <laughs> um, we've got another little section that I think we yeah, can pull going. off. Yep. We're back in uh, the year of the depend adult undergarment. Great. There is no jolly irony in Tiny Ewell's name. He is tiny, an elf-sized U.S. male. His feet barely reach the floor of the taxi. He is seated being driven east into the grim three-decker districts of East Watertown, west of Boston proper. A rehabilitative staffer wearing custodial whites under a Bombardier's jacket. Bombardier? Bombardier. Thank you. Bombardier. <laughs> Bombardier. <laughs> Bombardier's jacket sits beside Tiny Ewell, big arms crossed and staring placid as a cow at the intricately creased back of the cabbie's neck. The window Tiny is next to has a sticker that thanks him in advance for not smoking. Tiny Ewell wears no winter gear over a jacket and tie that don't quite go together and stares out his window with unplacid intensity at the same district he grew up in. He normally takes involved routes to avoid Watertown. His jacket, a 26S. His slacks, a 2624. Is that small? That is small. I don't know boy sizes. I am a 36-34. My goodness. So that's like <laughs> 10 <laughs> so inches smaller than up to your, <laughs> to your hips. Uh, his shirt, one of the shirts his wife had so considerately packed for him to bring into the hospital detox and hang on hangers that won't leave the rod. I was one chapter early for expecting this to end up in some kind of detox center. As with all Tiny Ewell's business shirts, only the front and cuffs are ironed. <laughs> it's funny. He wears, That's reasonable. Your back's going to get all wrinkled. Gonna, anyway. is, he's I'm wearing just, a jacket. By t- I'm going to be sweating through it by the time I get in the cab anyway. Yeah. He wears size six floor shine wingtips that gleam nicely, except for one big incongruous scuff mark of white from where he'd kicked at his front door when he'd returned home just before dawn from an extremely important get-together with potential clients to find that his wife had the locks changed and filed a restraining order and would communicate with him only by notes passed through the mail slot below the white door's black brass. The brass had been painted black. <laughs> Knocker. <laughs> when Tiny leans down and wipes at the scuff mark with a slim thumb, it only pales and smears. It is Tiny's first time out of happy slippers since his second day at the detox. They took away his floor shimes after 24 abstinent hours had passed, and he started to perhaps DT a little. He kept noticing mice scurrying around his room, mice as in rodents, vermin. And when he lodged a complaint and demanded the room be fumigated at once and then began running around hunched and pounding with the heel of a handheld floor shime at the mice, 
as they continued to ooze through the room's electrical outlets and scurry repulsively about. Eventually, a gentle-faced nurse, flanked by large men in custodial whites, negotiated a trade of shoes for Librium, predicting that the mild sedative would fumigate what really needed to be fumigated. They gave him slippers of green foam rubber with smiley faces embossed on the tops. The detox's inpatients are encouraged to call these happy slippers. <laughs> the staff referred to the footwear. Slippers. The staff referred to the footwear in private as piss catchers. <laughs> it is Tiny Ewell's first day out of rubber slippers and ass-exposing detox pajamas and striped cotton robe in two weeks. The early November day is foggy and colorless. The sky and the street are the same color. The trees look skeletal. There is bright, wet, wadded litter all along the seams of street and curb. The houses are skinny three-deckers, mashed together, wharf gray with salt-white trim, Madonnas in the yard, bow-legged dogs hurling themselves against the fencing. Some schoolboys in knee pads and scally caps are playing street hockey on a passing school's cement playground, except none of the boys seem to be moving. The tree's bony fingers make spell-casting gestures in the wind as they pass. East Watertown is the obvious straight-line easement between St. Mel's Detox and the halfway house's Enfield, and Ewell's insurance is paying for the cab. With his small round shape and bit of white goatee and a violent flush that could pass for health of some jolly sort, Tiny Ewell looks like a radically downscaled Burl Ives, the late Burl Ives as an impossible bearded child. <laughs> Tiny looks out the window at the rose window of the church next to the school playground where the boys are playing slash not playing. The rose window is not illuminated from either side. The man who for the last three days has been Tiny Ewell's roommate at St. Mel's Hospital's detoxification unit sits in a blue plastic straight back chair in front of his and Ewell's room's windows air conditioner, watching it. The air conditioner hums and gushes, and the man gazes with rapt intensity into its screen of horizontal vents. The air conditioner's cord is thick and white and leads into a three-prong outlet with black heel marks on the wall all around it. The November, <laughs> the November room is around 12 degrees Celsius. The man turns the air conditioner's dial from setting number four to setting number five. The curtains above it shake and billow around the window. The man's face falls into and out of amused expressions as he watches the air conditioner. He sits in the blue chair with a trembling styrofoam cup of coffee and a paper plate of brownies into which he taps ashes from the cigarettes whose smoke the air conditioner blows straight back above his head. The cigarette smoke is starting to pile up against the wall behind him and to ooze and run chilled down the wall and form a sort of cloud bank near the floor. The man's rapidly amused profile appears in the mirror on the wall beside the dresser the two inpatients share. The man, like Tiny Ewell, has the rouged corpse look that attends detox from late-stage alcoholism. The man is, in addition, a burnt yellow beneath his flush from chronic hepatitis. The mirror he appears in is treated with shatterproof lucite polymers. The man leans carefully forward with a plate of brownies in his lap and changes the setting of the air conditioner from 5 to 3 and then to 7 to 8, scanning the screen of gushing vents. He finally turns the selector's dial all the way around to 9. 
The air conditioner roars and blows his long hair straight back and his beard blows back over his shoulder. (laughs) Ashes fly and swirl around from his plate of brownies, plus crumbs, and his Rodney's tip blows cherry and gives sparks. He is deeply engaged by whatever he sees on Nine. He gives Tiny Ewell the screaming memes, (laughs) Ewell has complained. He wears piss catchers, a striped cotton St. Mel's robe, and a pair of glasses missing one lens. He has been watching the air conditioner all day. His face produces the little smiles and grimaces of a person who's being thoroughly entertained. (laughs) When the big black rehabilitative staffer placed Tiny Ewell in the taxi and then squeezed in and told the cabbie they wanted unit number six in the Enfield Marine VA hospital complex just off Commonwealth Ave in Enfield, the cabbie, whose photo was on the mass livery license taped to the glove compartment, the cabbie looking back and down at little tiny Ewell's neat white beard and ruddy complexion and sharp threads, had scratched under his scally cap and asked if he was sick or something. Tiny Ewell had said, so it would seem. <laughs> uh, by mid-afternoon on the 2nd of April, YDAU, the Near Eastern Medical Attaché, his devout wife, the Saudi Prince Q's personal physician's personal assistant, who'd been sent over to see why the medical attache hadn't appeared at the Back Bay Hilton in the AM and then hadn't answered his beeper's page, the personal physician himself, who'd come to see why his personal assistant hadn't come back, two embassy security guards with sidearms who'd been dispatched by a candidiatic, heartily pissed-off Prince Q, and two neatly groomed Seventh-day Adventist pamphleteers who'd seen human heads through the living room and found the front door unlocked and come in with all good spiritual intentions, (laughs) all were watching the recursive loop the medical attache had rigged on the TP's viewer the night before, sitting and standing there very still and attentive, looking not one bit distressed or in any way displeased, even though the room smelled very bad indeed. Ah. Ah. Builds. Um... What do you think? A little more? Or? Uh, I think that's good for the that's, I mean, that's like 25 minutes. Great. Uh, so what do you think? Uh-oh. Is tennis like suicide? Is life like suicide? Well, you know, it is in that every moment you're slowly killing yourself, right? Just by living. The I mean, that shit really got me. It's every, n- not to be too emo about it, but like every day you go to battle with yourself yes and you figure out whether you are winning or losing yes uh so i think somebody emailed or messaged us to say uh, something a quote about foster wallace uh, is appraisal of his own tennis skills is that he wasn't very good but he had like he he credited himself with like an innate knowledge of like the angles and math of the uh of the, the the court yep um yes he he wrote a long essay about that the angles of the the tennis court oh just about that he like his skill was not um like instinctual it was uh mathematical mathematical and analytical yeah there's a lot of a lot of math in this one a lot of ca- like chaos theory yeah i if mean some I, infinities I, are larger than others i can't imagine that that stuff is is worth uh un- innately like actually understanding the mathematical theories behind it as much Certainly as it not. is just like window dressing about like what incandenza and uh schnitt are thinking about schnitt Shit. Are uh, are thinking about or interested in? You seek to vanquish and transcend the limited self whose limits make the game impossible in the first place. Yes, it's true. 
Fuck. The game is impossible. <laughs> the only way to win is, is to not die. To play. Well, oh, it's not to play. I was going to say, you the, you'll, you, the only way to win is not to play, and the only way to end the game is to die. Yes. Otherwise, you are just in infinite, infinite. No uh, matter how good you are at life, everybody's game ends with a game over. Facts. Yeah. No, no free mans in life. And too, the whole thing about like the thing, the person that you're playing against, like you're not playing against him, playing against yourself. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a lot of uh, existential mathematics for one day. I would like to, I would like to get an ice cream at a uh, roadside ice cream place in in, uh, Massachusetts. I wonder what, I do wonder what flavor shtick got. He had a tricolor cone, but I don't think Neapolitan is very. I mean, you could have gotten like a rainbow sherbet or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and even just saying the idea of taking a taxi through Watertown, I think between that and watching the Depotted the other day, God help me, I kind of want to visit Boston. You want to fucking go to Boston? <laughs> I know, I know that's that's uh, anathema to say, but I mean, I would like to go anywhere. At this point. You would just like to go <laughs> to been, a place. That's the sta- that's the uh, the stage of uh, pandemic that we're in. Is that a trip to Boston sounds appealing? I'm so fucking bored. <laughs> I gotta go to fucking Boston. Fuck. Yeah. It's true. I would I would enjoy it. You know, go to legal seafood. Oh, legal seafood. Take a just go, go to Faneuil Hall and like yeah, just wander around there until yeah. everything closes at like ten or whenever their bars close there because they're not a real city. I went to visit someone long ago in Boston. It was my first time going as like a post college adult because mm-hmm. I used to I went a couple of times because I was like a four. It was the closest city to Burlington. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, I went. I r- arrived at like a, a beautiful Saturday. Uh, summer afternoon but like not too hot like it was gorgeous like early afternoon I just remember like getting out of the bus and like walking to where I needed to go and just being like where is everybody <laughs> <laughs> and it's just because there's not a lot of people in Boston yeah I know but the best Boston always feels like it's it's post-apocalyptic like it's been like depopulated the best Boston owner I can remember is a, a, a top an S-tier onion headline that's just like look uh uh Bostonians, Bostonians to continue to walk around like they live in a real city. That is incredible. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I will never forget that. Well, I mean, of the geographic nexus of the, this book, I would much rather go to Boston than Arizona. Absolutely. Uh, what What else do we have in this in this chapter? I we mean, I guess tiny, it's, it's shit, you're, tiny. You're, you're tiny starting little. to see more of the process of like how these people are going to uh, yeah, Enfield House, which I don't know if I think this was squeezed into a foot. No, or an end note, but um, it's the Marine VA Hospital Complex, which is just off Commonwealth Ave in Enfield. What else is in Enfield? The Tennis Academy. Tennis Academy. And they, and they keep talking about, in the other chapters, see, I was talking about this last episode, this, this tiny deal doling out of details. Mm-hmm. They keep talking about walking up Com, which I assume is Commonwealth, Commonwealth Avenue. Ave. Yes. Uh, so it's all sort it's of all, coming together. It's, it's, there's a convergence happening. Yes. Which is interesting because... Again, even up to this point in the book, what are we now, like 90 pages in or something? Um, We're on page 87. 87. Uh, basically, every chapter up to this point has been, other than some of the stuff about the Incandenzas, like a discreet, like short story introduction of a different character, right? Mm-hmm. And so you basically only get these characters as not even viewpoints because they're mostly describing things happening to them. But But basically, you know, I'm thinking about like the Kate, introduction or the introduction about uh what's his name the burglar you know it's Mm -hmm. like they're the interesting thing in their little chapter Mm -hmm. and you don't really get to see much about them interacting outside their own universe so 
be interesting to imagine how they might interact with one another. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, I assume that that'll go far to helping define them as actual characters rather than uh, collections of quirks that are being described from the outside. Yes, they they will their the, their dimensions will be revealed. Yeah, because I think you need to see somebody. in this Euclidean geometry. Yeah, in the Euclidean geometry of this, um, but you know, it's all it's still funny stuff between all these things, and of course, the ratcheting tension of what's going on with this uh this tape. Right, it's, there's a lot of people in there watching that. I like the seven day avatus. <laughs> uh, another, I mentioned Monty Python in the last, um, uh, uh, in the last episode, the, the tape and how it's progressing also reminds me of another classic flying circus bit, which is the, uh, the killing joke. Mm. Uh, it's a bit in which somebody writes a joke that is so funny that if you, one reads it, uh, what they die laughing uh-huh. and the whole premise of the sketch is, is it, it, it's increasing serious i believe it, it ratchets the exact same way of like incre- a guy writes a joke and then laughs himself to death reading it yeah and then like his wife comes what's in so and he's funny? like what's wrong hey and then reads it and laughs herself to death and then like an increasing series of people come in and laugh themselves to death and eventually like the british government uh gets their hands on it and assigns a series of scientists to translate it one word at a time mm. so that they don't kill themselves laughing to german to use against the germans during the war oh if you haven't seen it it ends with like a bunch of british people running through the fields like a battlefield shouting a joke in german that they don't understand (laughs) folks i love monty python it's It's, it's they're they're geniuses it's good Uh, all some all-time classic bits and maybe i wonder if foster wallace ever talked about liking them because they seem like they would be a sense of humor yeah anything else we want to talk about i think that's it oh oh is is david foster wallace a fascist (laughs) maybe i don't know I the more describing the idea of sacrificing the self for the state as a uh, uh, just a whiff of fascism. A whiff of fascism, yes, could be perverted to fascist uh, ends. Well, sacrificing what kind of state you're talking about? Uh, sacrificing yourself for the state, bad. Sacrificing yourself for the people, good. Good, yeah. Maybe I don't know. Yeah. Uh, again, I would I would love to hear how um uh, the David Foster Wallace essay on Trump. Oh yeah. Oh, God. But it's probably good that we won't have that. Yeah. Maybe these two things should not have intersected. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else from the week that uh, goes with any of our overarching themes, things, themes, any memes or whatever. This is two weeks later. I know. Seen any good memes lately? Eh, not really. Not really? Okay. I think we're in a meme fallow period. A fallow meme period. Come up with some good memes. Yeah. Uh. Okay, that's it. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.